Amen. Well, uh, if you would, take your copy of the Bible and uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is on page 952, if you're uh, using one of the black Bibles in your seat there. As uh, mentioned earlier, my name is Stephen Story. I serve as one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, this spring, whenever Pastor Bird is out of the pulpit, the other elders will be leading us through an occasional series in 1 Corinthians. And out of this letter, we want to consider the idea of life together as we seek to be a people here at Crawford Avenue who glorify God by living the gospel. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor John preached from 1 Corinthians 12. It's a passage about God's design for the church with its many diverse members and diverse giftings to make up a complete, fully functioning body. And uh, today we're going to the very beginning of the letter, to chapter 1, and we'll consider that when Paul looks at the church in Corinth, the fundamental thing he sees is people who have been set apart by God for himself. This was true of the Christians in Corinth. It's true of us here at Crawford Avenue, and we'll unpack together what this means. Uh, so follow along, and I'll read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, Paul, the apostle, wrote 13 books in the New Testament, and all of them open in a nearly identical fashion. Paul identifies himself as the author, and then he establishes that he does, in fact, have authority to address the church as he is about to do. The authority he has is not intrinsic to himself, but it's authority that was given to him by God. Paul says he was called by the will of God, not by his own will, but by God's will, to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Of course, the apostles were those who witnessed the resurrected Jesus and who were especially commissioned by Jesus to speak on his behalf. Paul also includes at the end of verse 1 that he's writing with our brother Sosthenes. So Paul is the author, Sosthenes is with him. Over in Acts chapter 18, we have an account of Paul visiting Corinth. Corinth was a, a city in southern Greece, just to the west of Athens. Paul spent about a year and a half there during his second missionary journey. And uh, interestingly, there is an individual in Acts 18 named Sosthenes. Uh, he may or may not have been the person Paul was with as he penned this letter. Uh, regardless, this seems to have been someone that the church there would have known and been familiar with. He's not an apostle, but he's given the designation of brother. 
And he is agreeing with Paul implicitly in what he's about to write in this letter. So, what opening remarks does Paul have for his audience at the outset of this letter that we call 1 Corinthians? We'll look at the passage in three parts. First of all, we'll see Paul's holy audience in verses 2 and 3. We'll see Paul's stunning thanksgiving in verse 4. And then we'll see Paul's confident assurance, verses 5 through 9. So, first of all, Paul's holy audience, verses 2 and 3. I want us to see from these verses that Paul identifies his audience first and primarily by who they are in relationship to God. He addresses them to the church of God that is in Corinth. Paul was writing to a specific church. He's writing to a local assembly of Christians. Which one? The one that's in the city of Corinth. Did you ever consider how much of the New Testament is written to local churches? Not to individual Christians, but most of the New Testament is written to local assemblies of God's people, local churches, or to the pastors of local churches. It's a simple reminder that the Christian faith is a corporate faith. Now, Paul is acquainted with the church in Corinth. He spent time there. He's seen the faces of these people. He knows them by name. As you go through the letter, he addresses many of them uh, specifically by name. And yet, he identifies these people first and primarily by who they are in relationship to God. Verse 2, they are those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. To be sanctified is to be made holy. Now, typically we think of sanctification as being a lifelong process for the Christian. And indeed, that's how Scripture most often speaks of sanctification. So you can look at places like Romans 6, 19, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Colossians 3, 10, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Hebrews 12, 14. Uh, these places, many others, we see that sanctification is a progressive work whereby we become more and more free from sin over time. It is happening now in our lives today. So we think of the different aspects of God's work to accomplish our salvation. If you are a Christian, God elected you before the foundation of the world. He determined to save you as one of His people. He called you effectually to Himself. We'll talk more about calling in a moment. He regenerated you. He caused you to be born again, to uh, be able to turn to Him in faith and repentance. He justified you. He made a legal declaration that you're forgiven and righteous in His sight. He adopted you as a true and permanent member of His family. And now, as you live in this life, He is in the process of sanctifying you, making you more and more free from sin, more and more like Christ over time. And He will preserve you in the days to come, all the way to the end, into eternity, when He will glorify you with His Son. So, we usually think of sanctification in that context, part of a logical sequence of events in our salvation. Sanctification is happening right now. But it's interesting, this does not seem to be exactly what Paul has in view right here. He's speaking of something that has already been accomplished. He says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, it's done. This, this way of thinking about sanctification comes up in other places. Uh, we see it elsewhere, uh, even in 1 Corinthians. In uh, chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. 
in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And in that verse, Paul links sanctification with justification, and it's something that has already happened. Now, we could get kind of hung up here, maybe a little confused, because I think we, we often, we think of sanctification as meaning the removal of sin, right? That, maybe that's what comes to mind. I know sometimes for me that's the case. We, uh, maybe you, you could picture an old ratty car uh, on the side of the road, left alone in the corner of the parking lot, filthy, with mud all over it. And maybe you think of sanctification as like going up to that car and washing all the dirt and mud off of it to clean it up. And that's kind of maybe the, the concept of sanctification that we have. But if you adjust that analogy just a little bit, imagine that you see the filthy car over there in the corner of the parking lot, uh, and you decide to go and purchase that car for yourself. Maybe put a sign on it that says, this is my car. And then you set about the process of cleaning it up and making it, uh, making it clean and whole again. Um, don't press that analogy too far, but maybe that, that just helps to communicate a little bit of the idea here that sanctification is not merely the removal of sin, but it's the, the marking out of uh, the property, what belongs to God, uh, setting something aside for His use and for His purpose. So in the Bible, sanctification and holiness go hand in hand. To be sanctified is to be made holy. You can't understand one of these things without the other. Uh, listen to what, what uh, one theologian writes on this. He says, holiness is the quintessential characteristic of God. Something or someone becomes holy when it is withdrawn from common use for divine use. That's the idea of setting apart. Because God is holy, His places and His people are holy as well. God's people are holy because they are God's people. And their holy status functions as the basis for the imperative to live in holy ways. Someone who has been sanctified has been made holy. More specifically, they have been set aside as belonging to God. God has always thought this way about His people. He's always thought of His people as being set aside for His purposes. You can go all the way back to Exodus chapter 19, uh, for instance, verses 5 and 6 there. God said to the people of Israel, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here in 1 Corinthians, in the original language, the word for saints is the word for holy. In the New Testament, sometimes it's translated saints, sometimes it's translated holy. To be a saint is to be holy, to be set apart for God. To be a saint is to belong to God. Incidentally, we can use the word saint much more freely than does the Roman Catholic Church, for instance. In Scripture, the term saint is not reserved for a special few, for an elite group of super-Christians. No, if you've trusted in Christ for your salvation, you are a saint. You are marked off as belonging to God. You are holy because you belong to Him. In the Old Testament, God marked out His people as the nation of Israel. The boundaries of God's people were the boundaries of Israel. And now, in the New Covenant, God's people are marked out in Christ and in the church. Where do you find the people set aside 
as belonging to God today. You find them in the church. This is, again, why we think church membership is such an important thing. God's design is for His people to be in fellowship with one another inside the boundaries He has set out for them, inside the church. If you're a Christian and you're not a member of a church, not a committed part of a particular local fellowship of Christians, just ask yourself, why not? God's design is for you to be with His people. His people are found in churches. Maybe you've never trusted in Christ. Just consider this morning, perhaps you feel in yourself a longing to be part of a family. Do you desire to be home, as it were, at peace with God, surrounded by other people who are at peace with God? Well, He has made a way for this to be possible. He sent His Son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, to die and pay the penalty for the sins of all who would trust in Him, to be raised to eternal life on their behalf. Consider, if you haven't trusted in Christ, perhaps the things you're so deeply craving can be found in one of God's churches. Maybe in His grace you'll find it even here at Crawford Avenue. So the the Corinthians have been sanctified. They have been set apart for God. What is the the manner in which this has taken place? It has happened in Christ Jesus. So God didn't just pull His people to the side and say, y'all are mine, y'all are holy, so y'all need to stay over here off to the side. That's not the idea of being set apart. No, it's the idea of being snatched up, pulled into God Himself, and united with the person of Jesus Christ. Pastor Burt's been leading us through Romans chapter 6, uh, 6 and 7, and we looked at this a few weeks ago. Uh, Romans 6 shows us that our, our physical water baptism is a picture of the spiritual reality. Christian, that you have been united with Christ such that when He died, you died. When He was raised to life, you were raised to life with Him. Even though we now continue to struggle against sin, we have already been united with Christ in a way that cannot be altered. We've been marked out as holy. We belong to God. Now, in speaking of Christians as already sanctified, Paul does not negate the need for them to pursue holy living. So Christians cannot say, I'm sanctified in Christ. I can live however I want. If that were the case then the rest of the letter would not read the way it does, as Paul urges and pleads with this church to turn from sin, to do what's right, to pursue holiness. The same idea came up over in Romans 6, right? You died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? No, instead, the fact that Christians have already been sanctified is the very reason that we ought to pursue sanctification. Our holy status being set apart for God comes first, and that forms the foundation for the instruction to then live in a holy manner. Just one example, uh, Shane read for us a moment ago from Ephesians 4, uh, Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 4. Paul instructs the church there, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. 
Living in a holy manner does not make you a Christian. But if you are a Christian, then you have already been given the status of being one of God's people, and His people ought to live in a particular way. We ought to live in a way, not not in a way that is common or ordinary or just like everyone else around us. These things are out of place. We ought to live in a way that is proper for God's holy people. How, How did this come to be? How is it that people who at one time did not belong to God came to belong to God? How is it that uh, people who were once ordinary, unremarkable, no special relationship to God came into a special relationship with God? How did this happen? Well, it happened because they were called. Verse 2, they were called to be saints. The word called appears up in verse 1. Paul says he was called to be an apostle. It's down in verse 9, and it appears several more times in chapter 1. Uh, Being called is, in fact, one of the themes that runs through chapter 1 of this letter. So, what does it mean to be called? Well, there's a type of calling that goes out broadly to all people. It's the gospel call to repent and believe in Christ, and that call is often rejected. So, you might share the gospel with your neighbor. They might hear the call to trust in Christ, and they might reject that call. Matthew twenty two fourteen. many are called, but few are chosen. There's another type of call spoken of in Scripture. We call it the effectual call of God to His elect people. It's a call that never fails to accomplish its purpose. It comes through the gospel call. It cannot happen apart from Christ being proclaimed. But as the gospel call goes out broadly to many, God sovereignly works through that general call to then effectually call to himself, those whom he has chosen. And this is what Paul has in mind in verse 2 when he says that they are called to be saints. It's what he has in mind in verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called. As I mentioned, it comes up several more times in chapter 1. So, uh, put a pin in this idea of calling. We're going to come back to it at the end of our text this morning. As we continue through verse 2, though, uh, Paul does something interesting here. Look at the last half of verse 2. Uh, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul could have left this phrase out entirely, and the letter would have read totally fine. He didn't have to include uh, these comments here, but he did. Uh, Paul goes out of his way to point out to the Corinthians that being united with Christ, they are also united with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthians are not the only ones whom God has made holy. Far from it. Malachi chapter 1 verse 11, God said that His name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to My name, for My name will be great among the nations. That prophecy was being fulfilled even through the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul, Uh, The Christians in Corinth are a real part, but they're only a fractional part of what God is doing to make a name for Himself. And this was intended to humble the Corinthians and help them situate themselves rightly. It should do the same for us. So Paul greets the Corinthian Christians, his holy audience, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's, let's hit pause for just a moment before we continue through this text. 
we're working our way through these verses in chapter 1, but I want us to, uh, to step back and consider what else we know about the Corinthian church. Now, up to this point, if the only thing you know is verses 1 through 3 of this letter, you might start to get the idea that the Corinthian church really has something special going on, right? They're receiving a letter from the Apostle Paul. They are the church of God. They are sanctified. They're called to be saints. They're united with other Christians all over the world. Paul greets them with grace and peace. Surely, this is a healthy church. Might even be an exemplary church, right? Well, if that's your expectation, prepare to be disappointed. This is a situation where the expectation and the reality are two very different things. You've seen those memes, right? Where kind of glorious expectation on the one side, and then second picture that's the sad, pathetic reality. What's the reality in Corinth? The reality is that this church is perhaps one of the most messed up churches you can imagine. Maybe you've been in an unhealthy church that was truly unhealthy. Compare it to the church at Corinth. Just from this letter, look at what we know. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. This is a church in which the members are quarreling with one one another over who their favorite Christian teacher is. Chapter 3, verse 3, church members are characterized by jealousy and strife. Chapter 4, verse 18, they are arrogant. Chapter 5, verse 1, a member of the church is sleeping with his stepmother, and the church is okay with it. Chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, members of the church are suing each other in court. And kind of the cherry on top, chapter 11, verses 20 and 21, church members are getting drunk, taking the Lord's Supper. This is the church Paul's writing to. This is a messed up church. And knowing this reality, it makes it all the more striking, first of all, that he's, he's just described them the way he did as having been sanctified. And it makes it all the more astounding now we come to verse 4, and we see Paul's thanksgiving for this church. So, uh, second point in our outline, Paul's stunning thanksgiving, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And we need to, we need to ponder this for a moment. Rather than launching into a list of all the problems in the church, which Paul will address, Paul makes it a point first to say that he gives thanks to God for this church. I give thanks to my God always for you. Not I begrudgingly thank God because it's what I'm expected to do as an apostle. He doesn't say, if I squint really hard, I can maybe pick out one or two things that I can thank God for. No, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Well, why, Paul? Why, why do you give thanks to God for this messed up bunch of Christians? Paul says, well, that's easy, because of the grace of God that was given to them in Christ Jesus. The grace of God, the unmerited favor of God, the life of God, hope from God, it was given to you. God didn't keep that grace to Himself. He gave it to you. The Corinthians are spiritually proud, and even here in his greeting, Paul just kind of knocks the legs out from under any sense. They've done well for themselves, and they somehow earned God's favor. No, the grace of God was given to them. He says, and it was given to you, not to some generic group of people, not just kind of out there for whoever wanted to come and claim it. No, He gave that grace to you. He elected you. He chose you. He called you. He gave this grace to you in Christ Jesus. 
It's through union with Christ that God's grace is imparted. So look at what you've got here. You've got God's grace poured out on a very specific group of very sinful people in Christ Jesus. You know what that is, right? That's the gospel. And what do you do when you see the gospel? You rejoice. You thank God. Paul looks at the Corinthians and he sees the gospel of Jesus on full display. So he gives thanks to God. Consider that as we live together as believers here in this body at Crawford Avenue, we ought to always be able to look at one another and say, I thank God for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ. No matter how bad the situation is, no matter how quirky or strange your fellow church member might be, you ought always to be able to look at them and say, I thank God for you because of His grace in your life. Now, it's, it's interesting to note, Paul does not merely say, I give thanks to God for His grace. I mean, that would be great in and of itself. But he says, I give thanks for you because of God's grace. I think this is instructive, that Paul gives thanks for the particular people to whom God's grace has been given. And really, if you, if you think about it, God's grace is only grace insofar as it is given to another. So if God kept all of His goodness to Himself, it wouldn't really be grace. It's grace when it's conferred on someone who doesn't deserve it. And Paul shows us here, because God chooses to pour out His grace on a person, we can and should thank God for that person, even when that person is imperfect. So let's develop this habit here at Crawford Avenue of looking at each other with all of our shortcomings, all of our weaknesses, all of our imperfections, and yet joyfully saying to one another, I thank God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I hope you can, you can see the good news that lies underneath all of this. You must not think that you need to become perfect in order to become a Christian. You must not think that you need to clean up the sin in your life so that you can then start to consider if maybe you should follow Christ and trust in Him. You'll only conquer the sin in your life by the power of God's grace. And God's grace comes to you in your union with Christ. When you trust in Him, when you turn to Him in faith and repentance, it's then that you begin to experience the grace of God that will defeat the sin that you're so tired of. Trusting in Christ comes first. Repent and believe. Turn to Him. Be united with Him. Let's look at our third and final point here. Paul's confident assurance. Verses 5 through 9, Paul's confident assurance. That in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I want us to appreciate here that despite the massive problems in the church at Corinth, Paul is confident that they will one day be found perfect in Christ. 
there are a couple of ways we see Paul's confidence. Uh, The first is in verse 6, his confidence that the testimony of Christ was confirmed among them. The word used there is a a legal term. The idea seems to be that the testimony about Christ, that is the, the gospel, the gospel was validated, it was ratified, it was established among them. It means that this church, for all its imperfections, is a place where the gospel is the law of the land. The gospel is what the Corinthians heard. It's what they believed, and the gospel is what they proclaim. The evidence that this is the case is verse 5. Paul says, they have been enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. There's a connection here between uh, chapter 1 and chapter 12 uh, that that, uh, John preached a couple of weeks ago where he talked about spiritual gifts. So chapter 1, verse 5, talks about speech and knowledge. Chapter 12, verse 8, talks about wisdom and knowledge. Uh, it's the same phrase in Greek, the same, same phrasing is used. Uh, the connection to uh, chapter 12 and spiritual gifts is even more explicit uh, down in verse 7. He says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Paul looks at these people. He sees the gifts of God distributed among them, and he rightly concludes that this is a genuine church full of real Christians. This is evidence. The gospel has been established in this church. We also see Paul's confidence in verse 8. He's he's confident the Corinthians will be guiltless on the last day. Uh, Verse 8, Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is sustaining this church so that the church might be kept and made perfect for Jesus. And that gives Paul great joy and great assurance that they will be God's people for all eternity. The the bedrock underneath his confidence is verse 9 then. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I mentioned earlier that we'd come back to the idea of calling as it it runs through uh, the whole chapter here. Back in verse 2, I saw that the Corinthians were called to be saints. Uh, So let's, let's think for another moment about what it means that Christians are called by God. And then I want us to especially consider how our calling gives us assurance of our salvation, assurance that our salvation will endure. Wayne Grudem's a Christian theologian. He says that effective or effectual calling is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which He summons people to Himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. This is what Paul has in mind in chapter 1. He elaborates on it uh, down at the end of the chapter, verses 26 through 30. And I want you to see here that this, this effectual call of God is directly connected to God's choosing. And because it is linked with God's choosing, it will not fail. It will accomplish salvation. So, uh, let me read uh, verses 26 through 30. He says, "'Consider your calling, brothers.'" Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus." You see, to be 
called by God in this effectual way is to be chosen by God. And God doesn't choose people for Himself only to then turn and walk away from them later on. Now, you might be tempted to think, all right, this is great, but it's all a little complicated. Maybe if somebody's really into theology, this is wonderful to know. But I think that's a mistaken conclusion. I think this is something that all Christians need to know and understand, and really God intends for us to benefit from it. This idea of God choosing us and calling us, this is the very reason that we can have confident assurance that our salvation is genuine and that our salvation will last to the end. So just ponder this question. If you are a Christian today, how do you know that you'll remain a Christian until the end of your life? 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, however long it may be to the end of your life. Imagine at the end of your life, you've gone through all the trials and difficulties of life, all the temptations to turn away from Christ. You're there on your hospital bed, maybe cancer is about to claim you, dementia is so bad you can't remember your own name. It's great that you're a Christian today, but how do you know you'll be a Christian then? This is a question some Christians really struggle with. Maybe, maybe you don't struggle with it, and if not, praise God. That's a, that's a gift from the Lord. But sooner or later, you'll talk to another Christian for whom this is a real struggle. Some Christians worry about losing their salvation to the point that they're almost paralyzed by fear. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 shows us how to answer those fears. Remember, up in verse 8, Paul was confident that the Corinthians, even with all of their problems, will make it to the end, that they will be guiltless on the last day. Why can he be so confident? Paul is confident because he knows that their salvation is all of God from beginning to end, and God is faithful. So if you have believed the gospel today, if you are someone who has believed the gospel, that is only possible because God called you. If God has called you, He's united you with His Son. He's given you gifts by the Spirit, and He will finish the work He has begun. And notice how Paul's confidence is a Trinitarian confidence. We, we get glimpses here of all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, Paul sees evidence that the Spirit is at work in the lives of these people. He sees they have been enriched in every way, verse 5. He's referring to the, the gifts they've been given over in chapter 12, and that's the work of the Spirit. This has happened because the grace of God was given to them in Christ Jesus the Son, verse 4. It happened as the testimony about Christ the Son was confirmed among them, verse 6. Even now the Son is the one sustaining them, verse 8. Now all of this is the outworking of the Father's work. He called them. He chose them. Verses 26, 27, 28. Uh, indeed, it's because of Him, verse 30, that they are in Christ. So God doesn't, God doesn't do salvation in piecemeal fashion. He doesn't start saving one person over here, then kind of give up and jump to somebody else, and maybe He got to them late in the game so that they don't get all the benefits of salvation. No, that's not the way it works. It's, it's, uh, it's all one salvation that the Lord has brought to us from beginning to end for every Christian. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. If you've believed the gospel, it's only because God called you. God chose you. The only way it's possible 
that you're now trusting in Christ is that He set you apart for Himself. And if God called you, He will keep you. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christian, we should live with confident assurance of our salvation. Because God is faithful, we know that He has us today, and He will keep us all the way to the end. Keep believing, keep trusting in Him with the hope that God is faithful. Not only can we enjoy assurance of our salvation, but as Christians, we can live joyfully with hope in the midst of a corrupt and rebellious world. We shouldn't be people who are gloomy and full of despair as we see the world around us in rebellion against God. Now, the day of our Lord Jesus is coming. Look forward to that day. Live for that day. Maybe even now you struggle with some, some sin or some weakness, some physical ailment. There's hope for you in the truths we're considering today. You will be found blameless in the day of Christ, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let this confidence spur you on to pursue holiness and wait eagerly for the day of Christ's return. If you're not yet a Christian, consider this. Know that there is coming a day of judgment. It's spoken of in our passage here as the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a real thing. Jesus is alive. He will one day return to judge all people. He will separate people into two groups, those who are united with Him and those who are not united with Him. The first group will be granted everlasting life and fellowship with Him. The second group will experience the just consequences of rebellion against Him. You'll be found guiltless in that day only if you are united with Christ. Turn to Him even today. Paul looks at the Corinthians. He begins this letter, and he sees first and foremost, he, he knows these people. He's visited with them. He's been with them. He knows them by name. And yet when he looks at them, the first thing he sees is people who have been set aside as belonging to God. Paul thanks God for these people because of the grace of God that has been given to them, the gospel that's been confirmed among them. The proof of this is that they have been enriched in many ways. The gifts given them by the Spirit, and despite the sin that they still struggle with, Paul is confident. These Christians have everything they need now as they wait for Jesus' return, and he's confident that God will keep them in Christ to the very end. So church, let's be encouraged in these things. This is a a little glimpse of what it looks like to live the gospel as we live out the faith in fellowship together here with one another at Crawford Avenue. Be encouraged in these things today. Let's pray together. God, we uh, praise you for the mighty work that you've done in saving your people. Father, you've marked us out as your own choosing us for yourself. Jesus, you united us with yourself. You paid for our sins. You've granted us new life with you. Holy Spirit, you dwell in us. You've given us gifts. You are the down payment. You're the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. God, we praise you for saving us. We pray that you would be calling many more to yourself even today. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus the Son, our Savior. Amen.